Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning from the Gospel reading, especially these words of Luke 12, But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Dear friends, in Christ, the sermon hymn conveys a much greater concern than whether or not God will clothe or feed us. That's because our doubts about the provision that comes from the all-providing God are only symptomatic of the greater attack upon us. The evil foe tempts us not by attacking that which is objective, namely God's provision, but by attacking that which is subjective, namely our faith in God's provision. We actually need not fear the foe, for as Luther famously says, he's judged the deed is done, one little word can fell him. So you might say that Jesus actually says to us in our text, little flock, fear not your little faith. Faith is a difficult concept to understand rightly, partly because as soon as we start talking about it, we start wondering whether our faith measures up. The Old Testament and epistle readings do seem to shower faith with praise, seem to declare it worthy of righteousness. They seem to. We hear of the great faith of the saints gone before us and what a shining example they are for every generation to come. But often when we hear Jesus speak of faith, he almost seems to lovingly chide our portion and measure of it. He speaks of our anxieties our worries, our constant seeking for the things needed to support this body and life. And then he silences any attempt we might have in defending our supposedly great faith, declaring just the opposite of us. O oh, you of little faith, he says. Perhaps we think he's simply teaching us humility, not to boast about such great faith of the Christian. But such an explanation won't do, for elsewhere in the Gospels, his focus on that weak faith continues. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He says to the disciples, even as the winds and the waves rock their little boat. And again, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, the mountains would move at your command. That seems to directly contradict not only our first two readings, but also what we tend to think about the faith of the Christian. He who apparently never struggles with it, we seem to think. We so often take pride in our faith, praising what we deem to be strong faith, speaking highly of the Christian as he who obviously has great faith, even comforting ourselves. I am in quite a predicament, but my faith will see me through. Yes, we can think it quite important to measure and take comfort in our faith. And it would seem that our faith does do great things for us, or at least that it's supposed to, if our faith is as strong as it should be. But, should we like to measure our faith, an honest reflection will quickly force us to concede how small and weak that faith really is. And because we are shaken about our faith's strength, 
we then become shaken about faith's God. For example, we tell ourselves that we have great faith, but the bills that pile up say otherwise, and we begin to wonder if God really provides for our every need. We try to convince ourselves that we have great faith, but the problems at work or home, between spouses and siblings, are not so easily brushed aside. What does that do but lead us to doubt whether God really cares or even whether he matters? We convince ourselves that we have great faith, but an ailment or infirmity which plagues us seemingly without end not only drains our physical strength, but often leads us to anxiously question our Lord's good and gracious will. We convince ourselves we have great faith, but the loss of a loved one reminds us how incapable we are of finding strength within to get through the difficult days, weeks, months, even years that lay ahead, and we feel as if God, too, has left us. And because the strength of our faith is so volatile, so uncertain, so unreliable, and because its volatility paints an uncertain picture of our God, it's a good thing that we are not saved by the strength of our faith. Hear that again. We are not saved by our faith strength or really even by faith itself. But we all fall into that train of thought from time to time, don't we? It's easy to think that by believing we have somehow contributed to our salvation. That by believing in the rescuer we have somehow helped in our own rescue. You might call this the error of Grace plus faith thinking. I am saved by God's grace and by my faith. No, actually you are not. That turns faith into something that comes from within, something that finds merit in itself, something that supposedly contributes to the equation of salvation. But faith does not contribute to salvation. It receives and benefits from the gift of salvation. As one theologian recently wrote, faith receives the verdict. It simply takes and holds what God is speaking upon you. And so when the Bible says that we are justified by faith, the theologian says, it does not mean that we are justified by what faith does. Rather, we are justified by faith means that faith holds on to that which saves, namely, the word of the gospel of Jesus, which says that he died for you and speaks upon you the blessings of his death. What a necessity it is for us to take this to heart. Do we not know the words of the scriptures clearly? By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, meaning the faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, it's not most accurately our faith that saves us or of which we should boast, as if it were our work or certainty. Rather, it is the grace of God on account of Christ, the object of our faith, that saves us. And in him we should boast. Paul says, far be it from me to boast, except, except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's why that whole faith chapter of our epistle reading, Abel by faith, Enoch by faith, Abraham by faith, that whole faith chapter might talk about the faith of the patriarchs, 
but it nevertheless eventually flows into and concludes with these climactic words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on our faith, but on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Friends, the one who fixes his eyes on his faith will soon think that Jesus' ability to save me depends upon how much I trust him. And that's why when we doubt whether God will provide, we convince ourselves that our doubt actually defines the sufficiency of his promises. Because we think that our faith actually defines his faithfulness. But God says, trust not in your faith's ability to to grasp or cling to or rationalize me and my promises. Rather, simply trust in me and my promises. There's a big difference, isn't there? In the former, you depend so much on your subjective thoughts and feelings. In the latter, your hope lies in something completely outside of your subjective feelings. That's what the entire gospel reading is all about. Christ basically says to us, the Father's promises are not defined by or hindered by your lack of faith, O you of little faith. And so, have faith. Not so that God can work, but because he has already promised to work. A promise that is certain despite your uncertainties. So then, as we do not fix our eyes on our rather small and subjective faith, you might say the lowercase f faith, and all of its anxieties, worries, and concerns, but rather by word and sacrament are strengthened and kept steadfast in the one true faith, the capital F faith, you might say, and its objective promises, Then do we not know with certainty that our God will provide in all things? The faith tells me that God is the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Thus God cares for the ravens. He provides for those birds of the air in the dead of winter as well as in the scorching heat of the summer. We know that to be true. And so what of his objective promises of provision to us? He arrays the lilies of the field, those common flowers. He adorns with the most beautiful color, designs them with the most intricate detail, and not only arrays them in beauty greater than Solomon, but also keeps and protects them all their days. We see with our own eyes the results of his promises to them. And so what of the objective certainty of his promises to us? He nurtures every blade of grass, gives new life to every tree of the spring, brings the proper provision of rain at the proper time to every crop of the field. How much more certain is his objective promise to and love for us, the pinnacle of his creation? And so, what of this promise? Christ died for you. It might not seem like much to hear that every week. 
We often take for granted the profound reality that God would love us in such a way. Yes, pastor, I've heard that before. What else does God have for me? What else to move my heart and bring tears to the eyes? What more to emotionally carry me through the week? Something that will help me increase the strength of my faith? But there need not be anything else for you. For that objective gospel endures forever. For what can possibly be provision greater than this promise objectively filled, fulfilled and certain and distributed in word and sacrament? The Father gave his Son for you. For you, the Father gave his Son. But one might say, but what do the cross and the sacraments have to do with my daily life? St. Paul answers that when he says, God who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so does he not. You see, friends, out of the promise of your eternal salvation also flows the promise of the Lord's temporal care for you. A parishioner of mine once asked me, Pastor, I desire to pray, but I don't always know for what to pray. For what should I pray? And I said, if you can't think of anything specific, then pray that you might in all things and at all times see Christ crucified. For does the same Christ crucified, given into death for our eternal salvation, not command us to pray regarding things temporal? Give us this day our daily bread. Not so that we might through our faith merit that daily bread, but that we would be reminded as Luther before us that God, for the sake of his sons and his sons' atoning sacrifice, freely gives us all that we need to support this body and life. Does the Father not promise to protect us from all enemies? That we might join with the psalmist saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Though the earth gives way, we will not fear, certainly not because of the greatness of our faith. For we, as the disciples before us, scatter into the garden at the sound of the enemy, just as sheep scatter when they sense danger. No, certainly not because of the greatness of our faith, but because of the greatness and certainty of Christ's faith. And so how fitting that the sermon hymn would calm us. O little flock, fear not the foe who madly seeks your overthrow. Fear not him who seeks to overthrow, to overthrow you, friends, to overthrow you not by forcefully tearing you from your shepherd. For the devil has no authority to do that. But rather who seeks to overthrow you by tempting you to despair of the promises of that shepherd to put your hope in your faith's strength rather than in the strength of faith's Lord. But as certain as is the devil's attempts to devour the baptized, even more certain is the safety of the flock on, account of the object, on the account of the objective promises of the flock's good shepherd. 
And so, friends, of what benefit is it to put your hope in the strength of your faith? To measure by your conviction the strength of Christ's faithfulness. That can only bring false pride or uncertainty. Ultimately, it can only bring doubt in the well-being of the flock. But the faith, capital F, the doctrine of Scripture promises you with certainty that there is one shepherd who gave his life for your salvation. One shepherd who through word and sacrament keeps you from being scattered and devoured. One shepherd whose promises for you and to you are objectively true. And so, fear not, little flock, that shepherd promises you. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.